Well, good morning. Uh, what a privilege and pleasure it is to be worshiping alongside of you and to have this opportunity to speak with you this morning. Whether you're joining us here in our sanctuary or in our Oak Brook Auditorium or out at our Butterfield campus or online, wherever you happen to be today, uh, it is a joy to be together as one family uh, at this time. I'm also so glad that you could be here as we continue our series of studies on the letter of St. Paul to the church at Galatia uh, long ago. And uh, we are doing a series that we have simply entitled, Real, the Search for Authentic Faith. And growing out of the uh, passage and reflections of St. Paul as he spoke to a church that was trying to find a real faith amidst a world of distractions and of fake spiritualities of many, many kinds. Uh, we're going to be studying this morning the third chapter of the letter to the Galatian church. And if you have your own Bible with, us, with you, you might want to open that up or uh, use your digital device to have that text in front of you as we look together at the wisdom we find there. Let me just try and set up the conversation, if I may, by uh, beginning with a, a brief story. When I was um, in the eighth grade, I went to Robert E. Bell Middle School in Chappaqua, New York. And I would go each and every Friday to room 201, uh, which was Mr. Frauenthal's class. And I vividly remember that Mr. Frauenthal was a long drink of water. Uh, he had one of the biggest Adam's apples I think I've ever seen. And the purpose of gathering in uh, Mr. Frauenthal's class was, was to learn how to use an unfamiliar device called a typewriter. Have any of you heard of one of those? Uh, the machine that sat on my desk looked something like that photograph. Um, it was a, um, a, a quite an amazing contraption, and there were many, many of these on all the desks in the class. And, and uh, you have proof, if you didn't have it before, just how very old I am that this was the technology of the day. Well, I remember that it took a great deal of effort to operate one of those. Uh, that, that just to press down the keys of one of those typewriters, you, did, you really had to work at that. And each and every one of those punches on the keys would activate a, a, a little mechanical arm that would, uh, would rotate up and slam against a ribbon and, and leave uh, through the typeface at the end of that little hammer arm an imprint in the ink uh, uh, the ink stream that would leave a mark like a letter on a piece of paper that was rolled around something called the carriage. Any of you remember this technology? Well, I also remember that if you didn't pound the key hard enough, and usually your muscles of your fingers weren't strong enough as you learned this, uh, and you would not punch hard enough, and then you would have to backspace and you have to hit the thing again in order to get a clear imprint on the paper. And I will never forget the very first sentence that I typed. It was, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. That's right. If you know that sentence, you too are very old. <laughs> it's a panogram, actually. It contains all of the letters of the uh, English alphabet. I didn't ever understand why we were given that sentence until I realized it forced us to use all of the letters on the keyboard. Well, as all of you who have ever used one of those devices know, um, it, it took a lot of work to operate uh, a typewriter. 
And, and when you got to the end of a line, you usually had to sweep the carriage back into its original position in order to start the next line. Uh, and, and if you made a mistake, you had to stop right there in the middle of the task, and you had to carefully paint over the error with a tiny little brush with a little, a little bit of white paint called white out. Yes, or maybe you had that tape that you could sometimes use uh, instead. As difficult as it was, however, it beat writing a long essay by hand. And I remember that by my sophomore year in high school, I could really fly on one of those typewriters, and it became just a great tool in my life. I do not use a typewriter any longer. Uh, I, um, I wrote this message that I'm sharing with you now on, on one of these. It's an Apple uh, MacBook Air uh, with an M2 processor in it. Uh, it's quite a different kind of uh, device. And I, and I will say that there's a lot of continuity between that device and the one that I first learned. Uh, the continuity is, is in the fact that the fundamental letters are still in the same place. The vocabulary that I use to form sentences is much the same. But writing involves much less anxiety and work on my word processor than it did on my typewriter. Why do you suppose that is? Well, one of the reasons is because there's power in the air that I didn't have when I was using the old typewriter. I didn't have the same need and no longer have the need to do the kind of dogged pounding anymore. I am no longer afraid of making mistakes on this device because they are so easy to correct. In fact, the machine actually corrects them in many instances. And, and, and I can even start the whole thing over and don't feel like I really lost something. Because if I need to go back, I can still recapture it. The burden that I carry now is, is literally a lighter burden. My original typewriter weighed over 25 pounds. My MacBook, one-tenth of that. What an amazing innovation. I will always be grateful for Mr. Frauenthal's typewriter. I know it provided me with incredibly crucial skills. But perhaps its greatest value was preparing me for the even better way to come, for the device that would transcend even that typewriter. In fact, I think that if you saw me still using a typewriter today, you might think, how foolish is that, Dan? I mean, what deluded you into going back and using that old thing? In a sense, this is pretty much how the Apostle Paul opens up chapter 3 of his famous letter. He says this, and I quote him, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? In other words, I think you must be under some kind of evil spell. Why? Because I see you doing something crazy. You have gone back to something old when I introduced to you something new and so much better that transcended that old thing, but you seem to have forgotten that. You seem to have forgotten how much you need God's grace and how he has supplied it to you. And you're going back 
to a manner of living and, and being that requires way too much work. I think it is easy to fall under the spell of the world and forget what God has done for us. And I want to encourage you to read the whole of Galatians chapter 3 for yourself. It's a long, long text, longer than we would have time to go through verse by verse today. But let me just try and summarize a few of the big ideas in, in this counsel that St. Paul gives. God's original intention is that we live by faith in him. God's original intention for humanity is that we would live by faith in him. This calling is portrayed in many places in the Old Testament narrative, beginning in the, in the book of Genesis, but particularly beautifully in the story of God's call to Abraham, who Paul talks about in chapter three. Abraham had so many reasons to doubt God's promises that he was going to, uh, to eventually have a child in his old age, that, that his little family would somehow be used to bless generations and generations of people all across the world. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the temptation to put all of his trust in the worldly sources of hope, Abraham chose to put his faith in God and to step out in trust and to follow where God was leading him in life. And that decision to trust God instead of himself proved revolutionary. One of the most famous and life-altering verses of the entire Bible is the 11th verse of Galatians chapter three, which reads, the righteous, or sometimes translated the just, the righteous or just will live by faith in God. They will live by faith in God rather than by trust in human works. Now Paul repeats this exact same statement in his letter to the Romans in chapter one and verse 17. And this same idea is credited by Martin Luther, you've heard of him, as having brought about the breakthrough in perspective that altered his entire understanding of the Christian faith and unleashed what we now call the Protestant Reformation. That the righteous or just will live by faith rather than by their works. I wanna to suggest to you that this idea is the principal difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and almost every other worldview. In so many spaces and systems of our world, we are bewitched into thinking that our significance is determined by what we do that our significance is determined by what our social network or our employer or the condition of our body or the scores on our tests say about us. But God says, I want you to put your faith instead in what I say about you, in, in, in your identity as my child, my beloved child. The world is alternatively trying to bewitch us so often with messages that our satisfaction in life is going to come from uh, possessions, from positions, or from power. How many of our friends and family uh, are under that spell? How many times do we slip under that spell ourselves? 
when God says to us, I want you to dedicate yourself to love and to servanthood. Whatever position, whatever possessions, whatever power you have, I want to make your primary purpose honoring and glorifying me, seeking to love others in my name, and this is going to give you a satisfaction you can find no other way. Do what my son teaches you, and the the great message of Jesus is love one another as I have loved you. Do this, and you will find a meaning and a joy set before you, even if you must endure a cross. Paul would say that faith in Christ, rather than in ourselves, is the way to real significance, to real satisfaction, and most germane to the focus of Galatians 3, it is the secret to real security and salvation. Now, I want to be as blunt as Paul is here. Many forms of popular religion or popular spirituality bewitch their inherent adherence into thinking that the way to get eternal security and salvation is to earn it through our good deeds or our personal righteousness. Uh, In fact, I would suggest that this is what is the common thread in all other religions except the gospel of Jesus. Now that is rarely stated as openly as I've just said it, but the bewitching message is that God grades on a curve. The underlining idea, he grades on a curve. Uh, We just have to pass we will probably score better on the test than a lot of these other slackers. Um, and, so, and so maybe maybe we shouldn't worry too much about ultimately passing, or maybe we should worry that maybe we haven't boned up enough on this stuff, and we should work a whole lot harder in order to get that grade that will qualify us for security eternally and for salvation. But God says, I don't grade on a curve. I grade on a Christ. I grade on the standard of my son, the holiness that you see in my son. And the implication is that if you are not as perfectly pure in your motivations, your feelings, your actions, your treatments, your regard, your self-sacrifice towards other people as my son is, do not trust in your goodness to save you. Do not trust in that to save you. The righteous will live by faith in Christ The righteous will live by faith in Christ, not in their works, says Paul. It is the reality of Christ's goodness and the authenticity of your relationship of trust in him on which your eternal life depends. Wow, if that is true, if that is really true, then that raises an interesting and very important question, I think. How did it happen and how does it keep on happening that people do not get this? That they keep going back to thinking that it can be their works, as I've said to you 
on a previous occasion, you know, I hear this all the time around funerals. You know, they're just, they're just so certain that just God will have to admit so-and-so because, well, he, he or she was just such a good person, or at least relatively such a good person. How is it the Galatians, after all of Paul's preaching to them, apparently didn't get this idea either. Hence, Paul's tirade in this chapter of his letter. And if, if, you, if you thought Paul was intense in chapter two, boy, chapter, read chapter three and you see Paul goes even harder at this. I'm guessing that for some of us today, particularly those of us who come from a highly moralistic tradition on either the Protestant or the Catholic side of the, of the spectrum, it's hard to come out from under the spell that says it's our righteousness that will save us. We've, we, we're told in so many times and places and by so many people we've, we've got to go to mass or to church or to confession because God is keeping score. Uh, we've got to, to get the kids baptized. We've got to, to, to espouse the right doctrine or do these other rituals uh, because God is writing our performance down in the great grade book. And he's gonna be comparing how we do to other people. And we need to do it right or we need to do it better and we'll be okay. Where did this come from? Where did this idea come from? Paul would say, it came from the law. It came from the law. The notion that we can get right with God by keeping all, or at least enough of his commandments, came from what is known as the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. It came from a very good and wonderful set of guidelines that God gave to his people Israel when they were living under emergency conditions. Remember, the faith begins uh, in, in its most recent form with Abraham, who is walking by faith himself. He's walking in trust, not in himself, not in his capacity to do the good deeds, but trust in God's grace. It begins there, but as the history of Israel unfolds, uh, Israel finds itself in, in, in emergency conditions, enslaved for generations, then freed from slavery and sent out into a wilderness. Israel is living under extremely intense emergency conditions. Do any of you remember all of the laws we lived under during the COVID era? You remember all the regulations and the rules. Do you recall the temperature taking and the six foot distancing and the mask wearing and the disinfecting of services, surfaces? And how after you would leave worship, we would spray this place with all kinds of, of mist just to, 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 to make sure everything would be okay. Were all of those laws good for us? Um, were all of them good for us? Should we still live under those conditions and regard them as our ultimate hope? Should we? The people of Israel, it strikes me, lived for not just two years, but for 40 years under emergency conditions. 
And they had left behind the only homeland they had, had ever known. And as hard as the circumstances back in Egypt had been, they found themselves in this wilderness with marauders and attackers that, that threatened them even more. They were wandering through a, a, a desert that was subject to all kinds of, of dangers and internal fights that every family and tight community has when they get under stress. And so God, in his loving kindness, says in effect, I understand that this is a very uncertain time. I'm going to give you some very clear parameters. I'm going to provide you with a mediator named Moses to help you through this season. And so God laid out a whole set of, of very important practices for that time. Practices that would help Israel, for example, stay connected to him. For example, the call to observe the Sabbath and to honor God's name and, and to run from idolatry. Staying connected to him under this, this, these emergency circumstances was their first great security. Then he gave them some very hard rules that would minimize their injuring of each other or of other people. For example, he gives them the very clear instruction to honor their parents, to refrain from murder, to stay away from adultery, to not steal, to avoid lying, false witness, and coveting each other's stuff. He gives those laws to them. Then God gives them a variety of guidelines which will eventually take a very racially and ethnically diverse family, and you need to know that this, as they traveled along and even entered into the promised land, Israel was no longer sort of a pure Jewish stock. It had acquired Canaanite people and, 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 and migrants from other areas that were now part of, of the great traveling tribe of God's people, and, and God gave them these laws that would help shape them, these feasts and these traditions that he asked all of them to observe that would shape them into a coherent community that could hold together and could stand up against the things that were coming at them. And God laid out a set of dietary regulations that would allow Israel to avoid major health risks. There's an entire book written on this called None of These Diseases that shows you how the dietary code of ancient Israel was, gave them a competitive advantage against the disease and the dangers that were present in the medical environment, the health environment of that era. And through all of these practices, God set up a law that could help preserve the nation through thick and thin until the Messiah could be born from that nation. And that was the great purpose. That was the promise to Abraham. Through you will come a seed that will spread out and bring blessing to all nations. And so God preserves Israel until the Messiah is born and a new covenant, the new law, the law of love, could finally be established. These Ten Commandments and the legislation that accreted around it became known as the law. And the Jewish people said, and I understand why, if we keep the law, we'll be okay. But over time, an insidious thing happened. They became bewitched more by keeping the law, at least superficially, 
than by connecting to the lawgiver, than by connecting to the one who had provided these important guidelines to them and putting their trust in his nature to be their salvation. So the big idea I want to stress, because Paul stresses it so very highly here, is that God gave Israel the law as a blessing, but not as their ultimate savior. Does that make sense? It was a means, it was not their Messiah. People, I think, in our time are always at risk of being bewitched on this point. We continue to think, to look to the law in one form or another to save us. We think if only we can settle on a a, a president or or fund a police force uh, who will enforce the law more consistently. If only we can have a court that interprets the law more faithfully. If only we can elect a Congress that drafts better laws, we will be saved. Are the laws good? Is it important to have good laws? Yes. Is it important to have uh, strong law enforcement? Yes. Is it important to have wise courts to interpret? Yeah, all of these things, yes. But these things are never to be our savior. They're a means, a mechanism of God's grace, not our Messiah. Like Israel, I think, we live in a world where the law can only roughly contain human nature but not change human nature. And that really is the function. Even if you go back and you read Romans 13, you'll just see that that Paul articulates there the function of the law is to restrain or contain the excesses of human nature, but it's not the hope of the world because we must really be attentive to what changes human nature. Israel needed a prescription, as all of us did and do, uh, for, for not just restraining the human tendency towards sin, but for processing and converting that tendency. And therein lies our real hope. Israel, like us today, needed a guardian who would defend what goodness looked like But even more, it needed a guide to shepherd Israel into the life for which all of us are made. It didn't just need a fence around life. It needed a wayfinder to take us beyond the fences of life into the good pastures of life. So tell me whether you agree with me on this or not. You and I and everybody we know need a change of our nature if we're going to see the ultimate salvation for which we long. As we move toward a close today, I want to just go back to the analogy with which we began. Do you remember I was talking, probably strangely, about a typewriter, about my eighth grade experience, and my modern day experience with a word processor? Let me try and tie it together now and show you where I've been going. Putting your faith in your obedience to the moral law, whether it's the Mosaic law or the law of somebody in your social or political network or the law of your parents or the law of some moral or religious authority in your background, putting your faith, your your great hope for your future in the law is like spending your life trying to write the story of your life on a typewriter, on an old typewriter. You can certainly try to do your life 
from that desk. I know that it won't be a total waste of time, that all, all of the foundational uh, letters and keystrokes are there in the law, but it's gonna take a lot of effort on your part to write a really good story if that's your main way of coming at it. The legalists who are watching you are going to spot every backspace and revision of your story. They will see each grammatical error, each misspelling, each whiteout. You can put your faith in your ability to win the allegiance and approval of all of these people, but this is really hard work. This is really exhausting. It's an ultimately failing way of life, I would submit to you. But there's good news. <laughs> there's very good news. As the Apostle Paul would tell all of us, Somebody has entered our reality who doesn't negate the value of the old typewriter, but who has transcended it. Now, I'm cautious about making this analogy as I know it's below the dignity of the massive transcendent wonder of who Jesus is. But you and I are now no longer subjects of the law but of the word, capital W, processor. The divine word, the one that spoke reality into existing, existence, who as John's gospel says, was in the beginning with God and through whom all things were made. That divine word has processed our failures fully through his crucifixion. As St. Paul writes, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And, and when he presents that fact, it's meant to be good news. It's meant to be wonderful news. What Paul is saying here is that because of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice upon the cross, you can have absolute faith that your sins and the penalty for those sins have been deleted deleted, and the trash has been emptied. The Galatians' sins and yours and mine will continue to be overwritten by Christ's righteousness. It'll be sort of like the autocorrect feature in a word processor has gone into effect over your life and mine if we're followers of Jesus, if our faith is in him. At the final judgment, Satan will stand as our accuser, the Bible suggests. It'll be like a, a courtroom, and there will be somebody prosecuting you. And, and, and Satan will be the very articulate uh, prosecutor at that moment. And, and Satan will stand and say, in effect, God, look at the pathetic document of this person's life. I mean, look at what a messed up story this is. Look at all of those instances where he did what he should not have done or where she did not do what she plainly ought to have done according to your law. You need to expel, you need to punish this miserable sinner for their terrible performance. And the judge will say, oh, but you don't understand. My judgment for this person was meted out already upon the cross. 
I see the story of this disciple very differently now. In all those places where Satan, you still see sin and failure and error written into the storyline, I see only the words, Christ's righteousness covers this. Christ's righteousness covers this. There is so much good that comes from doing our best with the typewriter of the law. And I don't want that to be missed. If you can help the brown lazy fox jump over that, that, that dog, I guess the, the fox wasn't lazy, it was the dog. The brown fox jump over the lazy dog, that, that, that's a great thing. You've helped one animal over an obstacle. If you can forego idolatry, profanity, Sabbath-breaking, dishonoring your parents, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, or covetousness, that's even better. Don't stop seeking these good ways in life. But because the divine word, Jesus has come, the old law has been transcended. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. He was the only one who lived all this stuff out perfectly and it's been transcended. Your sin has been fully processed. Your guilt has been completely overwritten, and you never again need to be anxious or feverish or clutched when you make the mistakes. You just backspace and turn to him. And he covers it. And he restores you. God's principal interest for his disciples now is what you want to write on the clean page of your future. What kind of marriage do you dream of having? And and what, what do you sense you want to bring to help that happen? What sort of church or school or or work culture do you want to be in and, and how might God use you to help shape that? How wonderful a parent or grandparent or sibling or friend can you imagine becoming? What what level of spiritual health or emotional health or physical health do you want going forward? And what are just the first few keys? that you might strike even today to start to write that fabulous new story. Because the news is, he supplied you through the Holy Spirit with the power for this new life, for a life without fear, for a life of faith, for a life of joyful hope and venturing Because the God that we meet in Jesus Christ is the God of an amazing grace for you and for me. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you that through the coming of your son Jesus, the weight of the old law is gone 
and the promise of a new life has come. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to write our next story. Now send us out forgiven and free in confidence and with hope to do just that. As we seek to live, even as we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.